Okay, if you have a Bible with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, on chapter 17. So we took a, a little break last week from John's Gospel. Every so often, I've been doing this series for, gee whiz, I don't know, more than a year and a half now on the Gospel of John. We did take a little break there for a while, but... But even as, when I do a long extended series, every once in a while I'll have a one-up. There'll be a Sunday or something will come up, the Lord will put something on my heart, and we'll just, we'll just you know, go to the side road for the day and then, and then come back to the, to the main highway. So last week we, we kind of took a side road for an exit or two, and, and instead of looking at John's Gospel, um, we looked at um, a text, a, a portion of Scripture from uh, Jeremiah 18, and how God spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, and then out of that extrapolated, and we did an exercise together, putting into practice, applying God's word uh, to our lives, and it was, it was kind of fun, it was a little bit different than what we normally do, but I like different, it's okay to color outside the lines every once in a while, right, and so if you missed that, and, and I've piqued your curiosity, there's an audio recording of it on the church website, but today we're going to go back to the Gospel of John, and um, so this morning we're going to look at Jesus' prayer for his disciples, uh, in John's Gospel, chapter uh, 17, verses 6 to 19. The previous uh, message from John, uh, we looked at verses 1 to 5, and it's where Jesus prayed for himself and for the Father's glory. And in verses 20 to 26, which we'll look at next week, Jesus prays for us. Um, but today, we're going to look at Jesus' prayer for, for his close friends, those that he's been meeting with uh, since chapter 13. So I'm going to cover a large portion of Scripture today, and uh, we'll just go through it a bite at a time. Um, I'll read a verse or two, and I'll follow it with my thoughts, my insights, and my personal commentary. So, we'll look verses uh, 6 through 8. This is Jesus uh, praying. He's praying to the Father. And he says, I have revealed you to those Excuse me. I have re revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So these are the, this, these are the prayers of Jesus. It's, our, it's to our advantage as followers of Jesus, as, as Christians, it's to our great advantage to pay attention to anything that Jesus says or does in Scripture. I think it would be especially helpful for us if we paid attention to the prayers of Jesus. It gives us unique insight into his heart, and it gives us insight into the relationship that he has with the Father. And so I encourage those of you who enjoy doing a personal Bible study, consider this. What if you did, a, <clears throat> did some research and did a personal study on the prayers of Jesus in the New Testament? That could be pretty powerful. There's lots of things he said, lots of things he did. But you may find it insightful and inspirational and personally helpful to take some time and just study the prayers of Jesus. I don't think you'll be disappointed. So this prayer, this beginning portion of it, is, is prayed to the Father. And it's really all about the role that Jesus has as the connector, as the connection between God the Father and humanity. It's how the world, the Word, <clears throat> became flesh and lived among us. 
He begins by saying, I have revealed you. I have revealed you. That's how verse 6 begins. The King James Version says it a little bit differently. It says, um, it says, I have made you manifest. I have manifested you. Instead of the word, word revealed, it has the word manifest. I remember years ago, hearing John Wimber speak, and he was talking about the manifest presence of God, or when, when manifestations of God's spirit happen in our midst. And he defined, defined the word manifest this way. I thought it was excellent. And he just kind of broke it into its, its two parts. The first is manning, where we can get the word hand. And the second half of it is fest, where we get the word festival. So he said, when the manifest presence of God is in our midst, he says, it's the dancing hand of God going across the room. And he just kind of touches people <laughs> like that. And sometimes when, he, when his dancing hand goes across the room, there's, there's a physical reaction in the body. And, and in so doing, the presence of God, the activity of God, the working and the power of God's spirit is revealed to us. Jesus says, I have revealed you. Strong's defines this word, revealed in the NIV or manifest in the King James Version. It defines it this way. It says, to make actual visual, known, or realized what has been hidden or unknown. And that's exactly what Jesus does concerning the Father. He makes, he reveals the Father. He makes the Father known. He was previously unknown, and now he's making him known. He's making him much more known than he was before. The word also means to, um, to expose to view, to show oneself, to appear, to become known, to be plainly recognized and thoroughly understood. It's a powerful word, this word, I have revealed you, reveal. Jesus has pulled back the veil to reveal, to pull back, to reveal something. It's kind of like a, one of my favorite parts of doing a wedding, and it's become less common nowadays, but there was a day when the bride always has a veil over her face, right? And she'd come up, and just before... The father of the bride gives the, the bride to the groom. What does he do? He lifts the veil. There's a revealing, right? He kisses his daughter, puts their hands together. Jesus has revealed the father to us. There's a lifting of the veil, a pulling back of the veil to reveal God to humanity and make this connection. Paul communicates the significance of this unveiling so well in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. Let me read those to you. He says, therefore, we have such a hope. We are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were dull. But to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ, only in Christ, Christ is the one who does the unveiling. Because only in Christ is the veil taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, the veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, 
Who is the Spirit? And I got to tell you, I read those words, and it's like, the, it's like there's fireworks going off inside of me. There's so much to say there. But I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail today because we really want to do John 17. I'll come back there someday. There is a blindness that's created by the law, by the law of Moses, and it's only removed by Christ. It's only removed by the love and the grace that he's provided for us. Grace ushers us into intimate friendship with the God of the universe. And this is what Christ has done to us. He removes the veil. We no longer have the law. We no longer have the veil of religion. But we can connect with God. And it's amazing. And where the spirit of the Lord is, where the spirit of the Lord is and the veil has been removed, there's, there's great demonstrations and expressions of freedom. That's what it's supposed to be. And sometimes what's said to me is like the Israelites, I know all too many Christians, is they prefer the veil. <laughs> I don't get it. But they, they, they're more comfortable with the veil. No, I don't want to see that. <laughs> Cover my eyes. It's too much to look at. It's the truth. Another sermon. Back to verse 6. <laughs> Jesus says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they will be your word. Jesus is the connection. He's the connector to the Father. The Father gave these men to Jesus. In Luke chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, we're told that Jesus prayed all night, and that the next morning he chose the twelve from among his followers. Those verses are this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He spent... The night praying to God, when morning came, he called his 12 disciples to him and chose the 12 from among them who he also designated as apostles. So Jesus prays all night. He's hanging out with the Father all night. They're talking about stuff. I'm thinking it's in the midst of that conversation. The Father says, I'm giving you these 12 guys. You've got this whole group of people who are following you. I want you to pick these 12. And so he does. He picks them. Jesus picks them. He knew what Peter was going to do. He knew what Judas was going to do. He knew that they would all leave him. And those are the ones the Father chose and gave to Jesus. Those are the ones that Jesus called. He knew them when he picked them. Guess what? He knows you. <laughs> he knew every mistake I was going to make, every stupid thing I've ever said and done, every sin I've ever committed, even this week. And still, he picked me. He's amazing. So the Father gave them Jesus and it says, and they have obeyed your word. Now, i got to tell you, I, I, I did some research on this. And I've got no trouble with the concept of obedience. I just think that the word obeyed your word, as it's stated in the New International Version, I think it's a pretty weak translation of what the, of what the text is actually saying. The King James Version, instead of saying have obeyed your word, they, have, they, have, they state it this way. They says, kept your word. Phillips, paraphrase, says, accepted your word. Strong's Concordance defines the word we have here as obeyed, means to attend to carefully or to take care of, to attend to or to take care of. That's a little bit different than obedience, isn't it? Right? What do you attend to? What do you take care of? Usually it's a loved one. It's somebody that's near and that's dear to you. That's who you attend to. When I, when I was sick, Nadine attended to me. She took care of me. It, 
That's very different um, dynamic in our relationship than for me to say when I was sick, maybe you know, obeyed me, right? I might get in the head of a frying pan if I said that. But she, she certainly attended to me, and she absolutely cared for me. Now, I've, I've introduced you to the, the Passion Translation of the Bible, and the more I read it, especially John's Gospel, the more I like it. I think they get it right. This is how, uh, this is how it states that phrase. It says, they have fastened your word firmly to their hearts. They have fashioned, fastened your word, capital W, not small w. They have fastened your word firmly to their hearts. The word, capital W, as in the word made flesh. It's the exact same word used here in John 17.6 as is used in John 1.14. It's the word logos or logos. Where we know the phrase, the Word, capital W, referring to Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. So, if we don't see it as obedience to the Word, the written Word, which certainly has an Old Covenant law connotation to it, but if we see it as a capital W, where they have fastened the Word, Jesus, to their hearts, then it makes much more sense. What does it mean? They've connected to the connector. right? They've embraced the bridge between God and man. They've connected to Jesus, the word. They haven't obeyed a word. Not that, it's not that they've followed some new, upgraded version of the written law. Can you see a difference? It better fits the context of the gospel as a whole, and it better fits the context of this prayer that Jesus offers to the Father. It's relational, it's not performance. As one of Bethel pastors and an author, Danny Silk, says, Jesus has invited us into connection with him, not into a religious reform program. Right? So I think we are so wired to performance. We're so wired to following the law. And grace is still such a struggle for so many of us in the church today that when we read the phrase, um, they have obeyed the word, we, I, I don't know, I'm inclined to go right to you know, I'm obeying. I'm, I'm following the rules. I'm, I'm dotting all the I's. I'm crossing all the T's. I'm jumping through all the hoops. And that's so far from what Jesus is saying here. And I think the, the Passion Translation really gets it. Right? They've fastened the capital W word to their hearts. They've embraced Jesus. So I would paraphrase verse 6 this way. If I had my own translation, I could start with this verse. I'd say it this way. I would say, Jesus is praying, he says, disciple, these disciples were yours, you gave them to me, I revealed you to them, and they have wholeheartedly embraced me. That's what he's done. He has wholeheartedly embraced me. You like that, TZV? Right there, right? That's good. Yeah. Just get me now. Yeah. <laughs> Verses 7 and 8 communicates what the result of this connection has been. It says, now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So because of this connection, the disciples now know that everything they have received from Jesus has come from the Father. The Father spoke to the Son, and the Son shared those words with the disciples. 
It's, it's what Jesus said in, in John 5, 19. He says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing, because whatever the father son does, uh, the son also does. And in John 14, 24, Jesus said, the words you hear are, are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. So Jesus did what he saw the father doing and spoke the words the father gave him to say. It reveals to us, it shows us just how one, how unified father and son are. Absolutely synchronized in their actions and in their words and in their heart. And the disciples accepted these works and words of Jesus. And as a result, the scripture tells us that they knew with certainty that Jesus came from the father. And they believed that the father had sent them. And so in verses 9 and 10, that was kind of like all the preamble to Jesus' prayer. It's kind of a conversation he's having with his father. And then he, then he, he kind of dives headlong in intercession. In verses 9 and 10, he says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you've given me. For they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. So this isn't a universal prayer for all of humanity, but a son's request to his father for his very close friends. Having done all he could to comfort his friends and encourage and, and instruct his friends, his disciples, since chapter 13, now Jesus does a great thing. He prays for them. These precious souls that the father and son share. <clears throat> These friends that have glorified Jesus. King James Version, I think, actually says it better than NIV. It says, I am glorified in them. He prays for them. And Jesus goes on to express his concern for his friends to his father in verse 11. Love, verse 11. Love, 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 verse 11. In John 17, Jesus, continuing to pray, he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Oh, man, I love the power of words. I love the power of small words. I love the power of small transitional words. Words like so. The disciples have been under Jesus' protection while he was on the earth. I got to tell you, when I, think of, when I hear the phrase being under protection, Growing up in Brooklyn has a whole different kind of connotation to me, right? You're under my protection, right? Just give me a little money each week. Everything's going to be all right. Nobody's going to bother you. <laughs> Capiche, right? So as it were, boy, it's such a bad analogy. Jesus was protecting his disciples. Nadine and I were watching The Godfather. It was on... It on TV. It's always on TV, right? It was on TV yesterday. There was nothing better to watch. We love The Godfather. We've watched that movie so many times. We're quoting the lines to each other as they come out. <laughs> so Jesus has protected his disciples. And now he's about to return to the Father and praise for their protection. Protection by the power of his name, the name of Jesus. Just as we, we sang so passionately this morning, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power and authority. In his name. And so why is Jesus praying for, for the disciples' protection? So that they may be one as we are one. So that they may be one as the Father and Son are one. So, the word so, it's, 
It's, it's that connection that Jesus is praying for protection for. So they would share the profound level of oneness. Why is he praying? He's praying so. So that the connection will continue on and it will not be broken. It's all about connection. It's all about the connection that was lost in the garden. That relational connection is the very reason why the word became flesh and, and dwelled among us. It's for restored connection that Jesus goes to the cross and it's for the protection of that connection that Jesus prays. Now there's two ways I think that we can look at what's this oneness that Jesus is praying for. It could be that he's praying for his disciples that they would be one among themselves to the same level and standard that's shared among the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now the Father, Son, and the Spirit are perfectly one, they're perfectly connected. There's absolute harmony and unity shared among the members of the Trinity. And Jesus could be praying that the disciples, the remaining 11, that there would be that same sense of unity among them that's shared among the Trinity. And I don't think that that would be a, a bad take on it. Or it could mean this, that as a group, they would be one with, not as the Father, Son, and Spirit, but that they would be one with the Father, Son, and Spirit. That they would share in this relational circle of perfect unity and love. And between the two, I think it's the latter. Now, a, for, a fair argument could be made for the former if it were not for verses 20 and 21 later on in this very same chapter, which says this. When Jesus is praying for us, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, not for the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. We're the ones who believed in Jesus because the disciples carried on the message of the gospel. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you sent me. That's unbelievable. That's profound. Guys, don't get lost in the phraseology of what's said in those two verses. It's incredible what Jesus is saying. Right there, in my humble opinion, that's the gospel message. Right there is the message of the gospel. When Jesus prays and says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, in the Trinity, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, some would say that the message of the gospel is John 3.16. And I really couldn't argue with it, for God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son to whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Other would say it's, it's more accurately described in Luke 19.10, which says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save, seek and save the lost. And, and that would be accurate too. But I think if you want the message of the full gospel, the, the full purpose for why Jesus came, I think you've got to look to John 17, verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. That's what it's all about. That level of connection. The same level of, of, of unity, of oneness that's shared among the Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Jesus' prayer is that we would be one with them. He, right here, he's praying for you and for me today. That we would be one with him. That's what it's all about. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not about church planting. It's not about world missions. It's not about feeding hungry people. All that's good stuff. It's not the message of the gospel. We could, we could forget all those things and get this part right and we'd be golden. But if we do all those other things, and they're good. I'm not saying they're bad. They're good things. They're not nearly as good. They're not nearly as important as this connection. As this relation. This is why Jesus came. I want to get this part right. After 30 years, almost 40 years as a Christian, I am desperate to get this part right. Even at the expense of every other thing. I'll get rid of all the other stuff if I can have this. This will change the world about us being one with him. Let's go for that. Let that be our highest mission, our highest goal. I got energy for this, man. I got passion for this. Guys, it's all about relationship. It always has been since before creation. It always will be until the end of time. There's a depth of connection with God, our intimate relationship with God, that's available to each of us that is beyond our imagination. We can go, each one of us, we can go as deep as we decide to go. And Jesus continues his prayer, verses 12 and 13. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None of those has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the description might be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy within in them. Now bear in mind, I covered it weeks and weeks ago about Judas, but Jesus gave Judas every out, loving and honoring him to the very end. Jesus never threw Judas under the bus. Judas made his own choices for personal fi financial gain and chose betrayal instead of loyal friendship. Jesus prays for joy. And again, I really like the way the Passion Translation takes verses 13. I think it's within, it gets the context of, of relational connection. Listen to this. It's, Jesus says, but now I am returning to you. So, Father, I pray that they will experience and enter into my joyous delight in you. Doesn't that fit well with his prayer in verse 11 about us, about us being in them? Right? That they praying for us that they would be in us. Now I am returning to you. So, Father, I pray that they will experience and enter into my joyous delight in you. There's great joy shared among the members of the Trinity, and Jesus wants his disciples to get in on it. Verses 14 and 16. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And Jesus makes, in, in Matthew 5, Jesus makes it clear that we're the salt of the earth in verse 13, and the light of the world in verse 14. But we're not of the world. We're surely in it. But we're not of the world. The plan isn't that we be removed from the darkness of this world, but that we be light in the midst of it. Jesus says plainly, and 
Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp, uh, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And guys, listen to me. Light overcomes darkness every single time. <laughs> it overcomes darkness absolutely every single time. If you don't believe me, go home tonight when it's dark and walk into a room where the lights are off. Flick the switch on. Tell me if there's any struggle. If you witness any battle, any tug of war between the light and the darkness, the, this side of the room is light. It's dark. It's light. It's dark. It's light. No, you flip that switch on and what happened? Boom! The darkness is gone. Light always overcomes darkness. Every single time. Darkness is instantly annihilated and replaced by light. We are the light of the world. God and His Holy Spirit, they dwell within us. The presence, the power, the life of God Almighty is inside you. It's inside me. We are the light of the world. I'll tell you what. As a younger Christian, there was a time in my life where I feared demons. I don't fear demons anymore. They fear the God inside of me. I don't say that arrogantly or boldly, and I don't go demon hunting, and I'm not looking to, to come against this or come against that. I've learned my lessons the hard way. I'm just saying I'm not afraid anymore. And if God sends me into places, then I know he's going with me. And we'll win. One way or another. This side of glory or that. We win. It's what's given me the faith and the courage and the boldness to minister in places like Burning Man. Okay, let's finish up today's verses. Verse 17 and to 19. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Just as the Father has sent Jesus to be the light of the world, he sends us to be a light in the world. Just as the Father has commissioned Jesus, Jesus commissions us. He commissions his disciples. So what does the word sanctify mean here? Well, think dedicate. Jesus has dedicated himself to us so that we may dedicate ourselves to God. Think the word commitment. Jesus has committed himself to us so that we may commit ourselves to God. Think of the word holy. Because of his holiness, we become holy. We've entered into covenant relationship with God. And because of that covenant relationship, the holiness of Jesus becomes our holiness. It's the only passage. It's the only way to holiness. Listen to me. Let me say this as clearly as I can. There's nothing in your behavior or performance that can make you more or less holy. It's not in us to produce. We cannot make it happen. The best description for holiness I have is this. Nadine became a Zawaki because I'm Zawaki. And when we entered into covenant relationship on that day, and she said, I do took my name, and she became part of who I am. She became a Zawaki because I'm a Zawaki. When we enter into covenant relationship with Jesus, we become holy because he's holy, and it's the only way that holiness happens. It's commitment. It's dedication. It's relational. It's not performance. 
as we enter into that relationship, that's the essence of holiness. The only entity, the only identity, person in all of the universe that can claim as the origin of holiness is God Almighty. He's our only source from it, for it. There's no way we could make ourselves good enough that we could perform to a level enough that we could come to him and say we're holy. We come to him as we are. He embraces us. And in the midst of that embrace, the holiness that's on him becomes holiness on us. Yes. And we take on his nature and his character. Ooh. We become what Jesus is through deep, abiding relationship. Yeah. Now next week we'll finish up chapter 17 with a look, a more in-depth look at the, at the prayer that Jesus has for us. So let's, let's pray. We're going to do one more song. And, um, and after the song we'll, we'll have our pot left this morning. But, um, but let's pray. Oh, God. Lord, have mercy on my friends today. <laughs> Sometimes I get so excited. I have so much passion and energy. I'm wondering if my words are coming out in logical form or not. Lord, I pray that they, they receive not just my heat, but that there be light as well. Make us one with you, O oh God. Make us one with you. Let us be so connected to you that who you are rubs off on us. That we'd smell like you, Jesus. <laughs> oh God, let it be so. Set us free from the pre-programming of a performance-based mindset and give us all the grace we need to truly live intimate and relational lives with you. Oh, God, let our relationship with you, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, be all you intended it to be. Not one thing more, Lord. Not one thing less. Amen? Amen. Amen.